Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell. And in today's episode, I'm going to do a solo cast and I'm going to talk about key mindsets for creating long-term opportunities for growth in your vocation, in your life, and in your ministry. Siren Kierkegaard has a saying that's one of my favorites, and it's really an abbreviation of some of his writing, but it often shows up as an aphorism. Life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. And so as, as I sit here at age 53 and have thought about my life, particularly over the last, say, uh, 30 years or so, it's going to be uh, 31 years right this month, uh, September, that I enrolled at Asbury Theological Seminary. And <clears throat> I want to walk backwards and think about some of the mindsets that I had. Some of these are from the very beginning, and some of these are going to go up until even the last decade or so that I learned from mentors and I put into practice and essentially opened up pathways and opportunities that have allowed me over time to enjoy access to opportunities that some other people haven't had the opportunity to. And I do fully recognize that I've had a blessed life. And I also want to give a caveat to all this. Now, today, I'm fo- going to focus on seven mindsets or attitudes that I believe if we that if anyone would apply to their life, it's going to open up possibilities. Now, this, in a sense, is best case scenario from my own life, because what I'm not going to go into great detail are the various pain points that I've also had to work through and challenges. But I believe looking backwards, right? Uh, we have to live our life going forward. You can only make sense of it looking backwards. I can look back and see that these seven mindsets have really served me in the long term, and I trust that they will serve and bless you as well. If you have any questions about anything that I say today, feel free to reach out to me via email, deepdivespirituality at gmail.com. And you can also check out my own resources and find other things that I have put out into the world. Most of them you can find links to at my website, brianrussellphd.com. Thank you for listening. I'd appreciate uh, reviews. If you find this episode helpful, share it with friends. And if you'd like to stay in touch, uh, subscribe so you can get the latest updates and of uh, and information that I'm putting out. So let's jump in, and, and I want to read a series of quotes. And some of these come from Greco-Roman sources, and some of the uh, one of these is explicitly Christian. I've often heard it said, uh, and this is a Christian quotation: "Pray as if it all depends on God. Act." as if it all depends on you. And in a sense, that comes on the heels of wisdom from the Greco-Roman period. And here's some aphorisms that come straight out of a Greco-Roman philosophical context. Um, Fortune favors the bold. When there isn't wind, row. And then probably the most famous aphorism that often gets 
put into a monotheistic context, but this really goes back to, I think, Hesiod, the gods help those who help themselves. So part of acquiring wisdom, friends, and this would include Christian wisdom, is ordering your life in a way and adapting certain mindsets and habits that you put into action as a means of blessing and serving others. I would call these all these mindsets, love your neighbor as yourself. But these are the kind of things that if you do them consistently, you'll get opportunities to serve, to grow, and to bless others. And that's a life well-lived, friends. And so I want to start with one of the first lessons that I learned. And this one goes um, all the way back uh, to high school for me. And I'm going to say that I learned this from my father. And this was, and mother for that matter, uh, but I watched my father in the employment world was uh, learning just to serve. And so when I was starting out, again, I, I was going to be an engineer well before I even got called to ministry. But I learned the valuable lesson that you have to start somewhere. And so my very first job, I started working when I was 13 years old. I got my license to be a referee for youth soccer games. So I literally cut my teeth as a 13-year-old refereeing soccer games and having parents screaming at me because they didn't like the way that I called the game. You know, And I probably maybe even deserved that sometimes. But cut my teeth doing that. And then I was a paper boy. So I got up, I mean, that was a job 365 days a year. I delivered papers faithfully um, for almost four years. That got me all the way through high school. And then when I started college, I didn't want to be a paper boy anymore. So I wanted a, a new job. And in those days, uh, you know, I didn't have a lot of experience other than being a paper boy. And so guess what I ended up doing? I worked for McDonald's and I made 335 an hour. And then after six months of busting and working really hard and even being praised, I even got a nickel raise after six months. And so I know by the time I worked at McDonald's for a year, I was up to 340 and I worked about 10 hours a week while I was in college. And so I was making all of whatever that is, $30 a week for literally the hardest job in terms of just demands. We had a saying, you've got time to lean, you've got time to clean. And so if you wanted to stay on the clock for whatever they had scheduled for you, you worked continuously. And I did that for $3.35 an hour, which was minimum wage back in those days. Don't say that to brag, but it was I, what I learned from that is if you want to move ahead, never be too high to do the lone the lowliest job as a means of learning skills and getting experiences. And I brought that into my academic life as well. Uh, when I was still in my PhD program, I began to try to learn how to publish things. And those of you who follow me, I've, I've written a lot of books over the last few years. Uh, most of those are behind me. And these are the three books that you can see over my shoulder if you're watching the YouTube video, Invitation, Realigning with God, Centering Prayer, the work I've done in the Wesley One Volume Commentary, a lot of my Bible studies. Um, that's been the last eight or nine years. But when I got started, I had a really difficult time publishing. And so what I did, I followed the advice of mentors. They said, hey, if you can't get your articles published, write book reviews. 
you know, so you basically get books and you volunteer to journal, say, hey, I'll review any books that um, need to be reviewed. And usually the top scholars get the best books. So I just always said, I'll do any books that you can't find somebody to review because I wanted the opportunity. And then when I was struggling publishing, I thought, you know, maybe I'll try to write Sunday school curriculum. And so I applied to the United Methodist Publishing House for the United Methodist Church, and they gave me little tiny assignments uh, that, you know, with my PhD, I could have done them in my sleep essentially. But guess what? I, I showed up and I did these really popular things that weren't going to advance my academic career. But guess what? It got me opportunities. So that first lesson was super important. Don't be afraid to start at the bottom as a way of getting experience that long game was going to open up other doors. And by writing those articles for the United Methodist Publishing House, that led me to write curriculum, entire quarters for the United Methodist Church. And I'm super grateful. And I wrote, I think I had the privilege of doing seven or eight quarters um, over about a 10-year period in the earlier 2000s for the United Methodist Church that cut my teeth in curriculum. And then guess what? That opened up an opportunity for me with Seedbed Publishing, which has published my invitation book and my psalm studies. But that I got that opportunity because I wasn't afraid to work my way up from the bottom. So the first principle is never be too high to do the job that somebody else won't do just to get experience. Okay, the second principle, and this kicks into my first semester at Asbury Theological Seminary. And literally this choice I'm gonna describe has massively impacted my life and I'm not even sure that I would be a professor at Asbury today if I wouldn't have put this mindset into practice. And the mindset was this, if you come to a crossroad and one side is easy and one side is more challenging, again, assuming that both are legitimate opportunities, always choose the more challenging one, the road less traveled. Let me tell you what that did and how that changed my life. My first semester at Asbury, um, I wanted this, I loved the Bible, so I wanted to take what used to be called English Bible at Asbury. It was our inductive Bible study course. I still teach these courses. Literally 31 years later, I still teach the, the, these courses for the seminary, and they've changed my life. It's what I've got really good at. But when I was looking to decide, okay, at Asbury, you have, and you still to this day, you either take a class on Matthew or you take a class on Mark. And I saw the first semester. This was the choice that I ran into. Uh, there were, I could take either Matthew or Mark, and there were two professors. Um, David Bauer taught Matthew, and we won't worry about who was teaching Mark because I'm gonna obviously gonna go with Bauer because Bauer's been my mentor. But this is how I got to David Bauer, who has been a mentor for me. He's my dean to this day. He's blessed me. He invested in me. He's the one that encouraged me to get a PhD. He 
literally went with me to Union Seminary where I got my PhD and introduced me to his professors. And I think that helped open up doors for me to get the opportunity to be in that PhD program. When I applied at Asbury, he supported me being hired and there was a real complicated process, but I can't thank David Bauer enough. But let me tell you how I got David to be my mentor. First semester, I had this choice, Matthew or Mark. And I remember thinking like, well, how do I decide? I'm like, well, what time is it? And I think the class was even at the same time. I'm like, okay, I want to take the class. It fits my schedule. Matthew or Mark, well, uh, who's the professor? Well, I looked up both professors then, and they were basically the same age. So it was two younger professors in their 30s. Um, I didn't know David Bauer or this uh, the other person from Adam. I never heard of them. I noticed they both went to the same PhD program. So I, I couldn't make that as the course. So it wasn't like one went to a better school than the other. I looked at their denominational background. They were both from smaller denominations. I was United Methodist. Both of them were from other uh, denominations that I had never heard of. Like David was in the Free Methodist Church. I had never heard of the Free Methodist Church by the time I'd got to Asbury. And so that didn't help me to decide. Uh, so I couldn't go by the time of the class. I couldn't go by the age of the professor, their PhD program, even their denomination. As far as I could tell, um, neither of them had published very much at that time. So I couldn't go by their scholarly reputation. And so what I was down to with my decision was, well, I looked and like, well, David Bauer was teaching Matthew. The other class was on Mark. And in my brain, I thought, well, if I'm going to take a gospel, um, I know that Matthew contains much of Mark's gospel. So I should take Matthew because it's a longer book. It's, it's probably more challenging. And I'll probably learn more about Jesus because there's more material in Matthew than there is in Mark. And so I literally signed up for David Bauer's class because I thought it would be harder to study Matthew than Mark. And friends, I got to tell you, that choice has changed my life, as I already said. It opened up all kinds of doors. And so there's an aphorism that you'll hear a lot of people say that I completely agree with. When you come to a choice, remember this, easy choice, hard life, hard choice, easy life. So never be afraid to take the choice that seems harder initially if it looks like it's going to open up more opportunities long term. So that's the second thing there. So never be afraid to start with a lowly position. And then when you have options, go with the harder, more demanding choice because you'll likely learn more and you never know what's going to open up. The third thing is get clear on what path you want to go on. And so when I was a student at the seminary, I, under the encouragement of Bauer and some of my other professors, I started pondering a PhD. And I noticed at the seminary that they always selected a student to stay around for a couple of years after graduation. They don't do this anymore, but when I was a student, they, had, they would hire a teaching fellow every year and you'd have the privilege of cutting your teeth. You'd teach Greek and Hebrew. And I knew if I got those 
two years, I'd get to cut my teeth teaching and see how I would do. And I'd also have two years to prepare to enter into a PhD program and be able to study for like the GRE. Um, and I ended up being able to learn German and French on my own in those two years. I was able to fill out my applications good enough to be able to get into a program. So I thought to myself, what would it look like if I was going to be, could be a teaching fellow? I was interested, right? And I looked at the people that had those positions and, you know, I, and I remember talking to them. It's like, what did you do that allowed you to get in this position? And then even more obviously, I went to the director of the teaching fellow program at the time. His, he was, he's deceased now, but he's one of the New Testament professors at Asbury, Robert Lyon. And I remember asking uh, Dr. Lyon, like, what, what would I need to do? Again, there's no guarantees, but what do you all look for in a person that you would hire as a teaching fellow. And he was kind enough to tell me. And so guess what I did? I did everything he said. I took extra New Testament classes. I took an independent study on advanced Greek. And again, I was already pretty good at Greek, so it's not like I skipped ahead of a bunch of people. I had taken Greek before I went to Asbury, but I studied Greek really hard. I got super good at Hebrew. And I took as many biblical studies classes, for one, because I wanted to go into a PhD, but I also took some extra New Testament classes even because I wanted a chance to be this teaching fellow. Uh, and guess what? Um, it worked out for me. Uh, and, and I'm not going to, and, I, and, I, and, uh, and I'm grateful, but I asked the obvious questions and then modeled my life after the things that you would, the, after the kind of habits that it would take to be able to be a teaching fellow. And that was a great opportunity for me and it thoroughly prepared me for my PhD. So third principle is if you want an opportunity, ask the people that are already doing it or have control over the process and then model yourself after the kind of people that get the positions that you want to get. Fourth thing, be a kind, generous collaborator. I'm gonna come back to this in a similar way and a couple of other principles, but one of the things that I've learned as I've worked really hard uh, for in my various positions that I've had is relationships matter. And so I've always gone out of my way um, to bless and serve collaborators uh, that, that I've had the chance of working with. And let me just give you a couple of examples. One of these is going to be example of a failure that I had that long game blessed me or an initial failure. And the other one was just me trying to be kind. So first, let me start with the kind one. I, I, I had the privilege for a season of doing a number of writing prod projects with an editor named Stan Purdom. I haven't talked to Stan for a number, number of years. Um, but I met Stan when I first got the opportunity to write curriculum for the United Methodist Publishing House. They used to fly. I, was, I would write the teacher book, and then there would be another author who would write the student manual and you would fly to Nashville, meet with the editors and um, just talk about your ideas for the various lessons so you can be on the same page. And I remember thinking like, well, I've never done this before. And I knew that Stan had written before 
and I didn't know anything else about him. And so uh, I remember, because I, they emailed both of us, and so there was an email chain. So I just re- remember when I was flying to Nashville, I emailed Stan and said, hey, Stan, um, would you like to have dinner the night before we went into all these meetings? And he wrote back and said, um, yes. And I didn't think anything of it. I thought I was just being nice and trying to be friendly and you know make a friend with the person I was gonna work with. But, but this is the stunning thing, friends. When we sat down for dinner, he goes, you know, I've written with a number of writers and you're the first person who ever asked to have dinner with me. And I didn't know what to say other than, and I, um, and then we talked, but, but here's the cool thing. That relationship I built because I wanted to be kind and get to know the person that I was collaborating with ended up being a long-term strategic partnership. And basically for about the next 15 years, Stan hired me to write on some of the projects that he was in charge of outside of the United Methodist Publishing House. And I have to tell you, that literally put thousands of dollars into my pocket, especially in those, some of those monies came in during seasons of scarcity for me. And when I was just getting started, I didn't have a lot of resources. I had a young family and we were struggling a lot of times. And that just me having dinner with a person out of kindness that I was collaborating with brought financial opportunities for me that I wouldn't have had and allowed me to practice my writing. I ended up writing sermons for a sermon writing journal and I did a lot of other projects around worship in the church. These were just little small writing projects, but they paid a little bit. And I got experience, which again, opened up future opportunities. So that was a success. Let me give an example of how I reacted with kindness to a failure. Back during the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009, uh, really ran into some difficult times. And so I was trying to find additional writing opportunities because that was one of my chief skills. And I wrote to an editor uh, at Stephen, uh, David Cook Publications. They do a lot of uh, Sunday school curriculum. And uh, I put in an application to be a, a curriculum writer. And uh, the person who worked there, uh, the editor, um, he wrote me back and said, we don't have anything um, for you. And obviously I was deeply disappointed and I got rejected a lot in those early days, like all the time, one rejection after another. But what I always did after I got a rejection is I wrote a note back thanking the person for letting me know and um, expressing gratitude for even considering me and then saying, if anything came open in the future, would you please consider me? Well, you probably know where this one's going. So initial failure back in 2008, 2009. Well, guess what? Something even worse happened to me just a couple years later. Those of you who know my story, I went through a really difficult uh, divorce and it was financially you know, devastating in some ways like they always are. And right when I needed resources, take care of my kids, to keep myself afloat, to pay my bills, that editor from David C. Cook, who I had sent that generous thank you note to after being rejected, remembered me, actually mentioned they liked how I wrote back to them. And guess what? Started giving me writing assignments that brought extra money and actually kept me uh, 
afloat financially during a really difficult period. And I wrote for David C. Cook for a number of years as well. Super grateful. So always be kind with the people that you have the opportunity to collaborate with or even persons that you think you might want to collaborate with because an initial rejection might ultimately open a way up to something new if, if you want to call it this, you're not a sore loser when you get a rejection, but you can be a generous one. So always be kind uh, for new up with new colleagues. But even if you don't, if you even get a no, write back and thank people for the opportunity. I'm just telling you that pays off long term. Um, fifth, when you're involved in new processes, and new opportunities give your good ideas away for free to solve other people's problems. You know, we live in a world where people think it's always scarcity, but don't be afraid to solve somebody else's problems. Let me just give you two examples. Again, I had the privilege of being a dean and associate provost for a season at Asbury Seminary. And in one of the ways that I got that opportunity was I became known as the scheduling guy at Asbury. You know, I I'm I designed all, most recently a lot of the hybrid scheduling that's worked so well to send the theological education to, to many of our different sites. Um, but before even that, um, I learned some principles that helped us create a really effective schedule that opened up courses for students to be able to have easier access by days and times to take as many classes as possible. So I got known as the scheduling guy, and that got me the opportunity to be dean and later associate provost. But I did the schedule before I ever got paid to work on the schedule. Now, the other opportunity that opened up for me that was transformational for my family um, was I got for a few years, I think actually five years, I think I, w I got the privilege of being editor at Seedbed, which is a, a publisher. And I had the privilege of working and editing a number of our one book Bible studies, which was a lot of fun. I got a lot of great experiences, but let me tell you how I got that job. It goes back number one to my willingness to have worked on curriculum projects earlier in life, which again, I was almost like, yeah, I'm struggling to publish academically, but I learned to write curriculum. And so when Seedbed started pondering doing curriculum, they reached out to me because they knew about my experiences writing curriculum. So I was kind of a on-the-side advisor. And one of the times they were communicating with me uh, the problems they were having with uh, certain writers um, in terms of writing at a... Um, easier style that was more accessible to lay people. Well, I had made it my specialty to learn to distill and translate high-level biblical scholarship into simpler sentence structures and words that lay people could, could easily read. And so what I did is I wrote Seedbed and I sent them an email that had my 10, I think it was 10, uh, writing tips that would help academic writers translate their work into a more accessible format for lay readers. Well, here's what was amazing. A few weeks after I sent that email, again, I didn't get paid a penny for it. I got offered the job of being the editor. 
But what was the principle? I didn't get, I got the job because I solved the problem in advance of ever getting a paycheck. So look around, are there where you are right now? Are you looking to advance where you are or would you like to advance somewhere else? Solve someone else's problem for them. And again, some people will take advantage of that, of course, and I can point to that, but guess what? If you share your ideas, the right people will find them and they'll give you opportunities yourself. So be a person that solves other people's problems in advance of getting paid for it. You'll be glad you did. The sixth idea. This, this falls from that. This is about solving problems. But be the kind of person that when a crisis happens, you don't panic, or at least publicly, and you bless and serve people even more during a hardship. Uh, a number of you know, and I do talk about it on the podcast, that you know I have a coaching business. I have the privilege of, of coaching a number of pastors. I have the uh, privilege of coaching some small business owners to, and entrepreneurs. I have the privilege of, of coaching just young people that are trying to get started in their lives and career. And it's been a lot of fun. Uh, in my, you know, the business side of, of that for my life has gone reasonably well. I mean, I don't do it full time, but I probably could if I wanted to at this point. But back when I basically didn't have really any clients at all, uh, COVID kicked in. This is back in the spring of 2020. And, you know, I, I had been coaching for a couple of years at that point. I had my first clients officially that were paying me money back in 2018, but it was just a trickle of people here and there. And I did a lot of practice and did a lot of stuff for free. But when COVID started, I noticed that, especially pastors, um, a lot of panicking. If you remember those days, pa churches had to suddenly put everything online. And if you were a small church pastor, that created a huge amount of stress and anxiety um, in your life. And so I thought, you know what, I want to help. And, um, and honestly, and I can say this with full integrity, I wasn't thinking that this was ultimately going to help my, um, uh, you know, my coaching business, but I just wanted to help. And so on social media, I put a, a basic, a really generic post up on Twitter and a really generic post up on Instagram that basically said, hey, uh, pastors, I know this is really difficult right now. Um, I'm going to offer a free coaching session on Zoom to help you get through this difficult season. And so I basically started hosting these, you know, fairly large Zoom calls. I think we had between 15 and 25 persons jumping on these calls. And what did I do? I shared some of my coaching resources and coaching knowledge about how to think about challenging times and creating a pathway through. I talked about spiritual formation and how we needed to double down on our spiritual practices back in those days. And uh, even in taught a little bit about centering prayer. And here's what the amazing thing does. I gave a lot of my good stuff, again, away for free just because I wanted to bless and serve. And guess what happened? Slowly, in response to that, um, several of the people uh, became parts of my coaching program and they recommended me to others which allowed my coaching program to grow but it all started when I wasn't worried again 
about getting paid. I was only focusing on serving and blessing people that needed some help in the middle of a crisis. So the next time you run into a real crisis, don't panic. Figure out how you can be of service. You know, in long game, you know, I've noticed in my whole life that the ability to make a living takes care of itself. And I hope that's a thread that's running through this. It's not like I'm some rich guy or anything, but I've noticed I've been able to uh, support my family and make it through some difficult financial situations myself by, again, blessing and serving, building relationships, doing the things that other people don't do, even if there's no immediate instant gratification. And let me just give you the, the, the seventh uh, secret, I think. It's not really a secret, but that'll open up opportunities for you. Again, remember back to those Proverbs, when there's no wind, row. Be an abundance partner with the other people that you get to work with. Again, I've been involved um, in business and in ministry with lots of people over the years. Um, and I've noticed, you know, there's people that essentially work out of a scarcity mentality. You don't know it until you go, you still you do stuff with folks. But there's a lot of folks that are only in it for themselves, and they'll take advantage of you. Guess what? You still you let yourself be taken advantage one time and just learn the lessons. But be an abundance person. And let me show you what I mean. I'm going to name a, a few people that have that I'm going to that are, I found to be abundance people. First, you know, with my book, Centering Prayer. Um, again, I teach centering prayer. Obviously, I would love people to buy my book, and I'd even, you know, I enjoy getting opportunities to serve and speak at churches about it. Uh, but back in advance of my book coming out, I was trying to make new friends. And so I have on this very podcast, I invited, you know, some centering prayer authors to be on because, you know, I had a book coming out. So at least I wanted to bring some other people and, and build an audience around centering prayer. And so um, I, I, had several authors on and all of them were wonderful. So this isn't a backward shot at anybody that came on my podcast to talk about centering prayer. But there was one author in particular that I've built a really great friendship with and his name's Rich Lewis. He has a book called Sitting with God. And you, if you follow me, you know that Rich and I, every month, we do a free virtual centering prayer gathering. And again, if you're interested in that, check out centeringprayerbook.com, sign up for it. We, we roughly do it usually the third Saturday of every month, but reach out to me if you'd like to be invited. But, but what was funny is I had even other authors say to me, it's like, geez, Brian, why do you publicize other people's books on centering prayer? Aren't they your competitors? No. I believe in abundance. There is unlimited resources in our world. And if we bless and serve and support each other, even people doing the same sorts of things, that will multiply opportunities, not make your opportunities smaller. And so with Rich, it's so fun. I mean, we've worked together. Um, he's introduced me to podcast guests that... Um, he's been on and I've been able to be on other podcasts. Uh, we've built a really great friendship. We support each other's writings. Um, and you know, we let each and and that's those are abundance partnerships. So look for abundance people. And I found the same thing in the coaching world. I've made great friends. Let me just name three people out loud. They've all been on my podcast. Uh, Mark Danzi. 
he was my own coach. I paid him to coach me. And we've done some group coaching programs together. And we've stayed friends and worked together. And um, I work with Mark to this day on coaching. Mark Dunwoody, I met him on my podcast. And we do work on coaching and we encourage each other. He lives in, uh, in Northern Ireland. And you know we bless and serve each other. Uh, Joel Green, a professor, he's, he's just retired, I think literally in September of 2022, I believe he's retired now. Uh, he was, I met him before I, before we started teaching at Asbury, he was my first provost. Joel models this abundance. He always tries to support and get opportunities for um, new young scholars and Joel basically a lot of my academic writing goes back to Joel because he blessed and didn't just hold on to everything himself, but it's always been generous. And it's not just me. You can look at Joel's work. He's always blessed other people. So look for abundance partners. Again, you can't always tell an abundance partner from the outside, but you'll figure it out pretty quick if that person just wants something from you or wants to use you to advance themselves, or if you're, it's gonna be a mutual blessing where you help each other to succeed. I was a big fan of Zig Ziglar when I was younger, still am. Zig died a few years ago, but he was, a, he was one of the first, I guess, motivational speakers that I ever heard. I heard him back on Christian AM radio, and I've always enjoyed his work. Uh, again, a, 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 a Christian man who taught business people how to succeed. And he has a great saying, and I want to end with this. He said, you can get anything you want out of life if you help another enough other people get what they want out of life. Now, friends, it's been a real privilege to share some of these ideas with you. Wherever you are, whether you're closer to my age, you can begin to put these principles into action even today. For, to open up new opportunities as you age, as you work into that 2.0, 3.0. If you're younger, listen really carefully to what I said. I started practicing these types of mindsets and lived my life in this way. And that puts me in a position now where, again, yeah, would I like things to get easy for me? Sure. But you know what I know? It's uh, life has challenges. And when the challenging times come, and I haven't talked about all the challenges that I faced but these mindsets of serving and blessing others, of being an abundance person, of not going with the easy pathway, of being kind, of solving other people's problems, of taking the lowly place to get started, those opened up doors that even when I hit the darkest and most challenging times in my life, there was always at least a glimmer of light to guide me through that. And I'm grateful to God for those blessings and I'm grateful for the friendships and all the people that have helped me. And again, I hope this doesn't sound like I'm on here bragging because I'm not. Again, um, I've given you the Instagram version of my life to do some of the highlights. There's plenty of dark things that, that I've had to overcome because everybody has their challenges. But I just want to say this, friends. If I can be of service to you, I'm always willing to have conversations um, with people uh, because I believe every single word um, that I said today. You know, you can only live your life going forward. So decide how you're going to live and then look back and pull out those principles and just notice those things. You know, pray as if everything depends on God, but act 
like everything depends on you. What would be your principles? What would you add to this conversation? Love to hear about it. Uh, until next time, walk the path. Trust God, surrender, and bless and serve others today. You'll be glad you did.